Here in America, work is in trouble. We've offshored our manufacturing, sent away good jobs, and lost so much ability to make things. American Giant is a company that's pushing back against this tide. They make high-quality clothing, sweatshirts, jeans, dresses, jackets, and so much more right here in the USA. Visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order when you use code STAPLE20 at checkout. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com. Promo code STAPLE20. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hey sis, welcome back to Girl Good Night. I'm Return of Lamac, and every Sunday you can relax to binaural beats while I read you a melanated bedtime story. Tap into the show on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. All links will be in the episode description. Submit original work and future episode suggestions to girlgoodnightpodcast at gmail.com. Help your friends sleep in melanated peace. Girl, share the show and show us some love with a five-star rating and review. Tonight, we will be reading Mini Sacrifice, written by Frances Harper in 1869. Frances Ellen Watkins Harper, born in 1825, was one of the first black women to be published in the United States. She worked with William Still to help refugee slaves find freedom in Canada through the Underground Railroad and was an activist with the American Anti-Slavery Society. In 1894, she helped found the National Association of Colored Women and served as vice president. She died at age 85 in 1911. Minnie's Sacrifice was originally published as a serialization of three novels in The Christian Recorder, a journal by the African Methodist Episcopal Church. Minnie's Sacrifice is the story of a woman living in the North whose identity and heritage is kept from her until she unexpectedly meets her birth mother, an escaped slave. She marries a man whose racial identity and heritage were also kept from him, and they move to the South to participate in uplifting and empowering members of their race. Now, close your eyes, take a deep breath, and sleep in melanated peace. Before he located, Luis concluded to visit the old homestead and to present his beautiful young bride to his grandmother and Camilla. He knew his adopted sister too well to fear that Minnie would fail to receive from her the warmest welcome, and so, with eager heart, he took passage on one of the Mississippi boats to New Orleans, intending to stop in the city a few days and send word to Camilla. But just as he was passing from the levee to the hotel, he caught a glimpse of Camilla walking down the street and stopping the carriage, he alighted and spoke to her. 
she immediately recognized him, although his handsome face had become somewhat bronzed by exposure in camp and field. Do not go to the hotel, she said. You are heartily welcome. Come home with me. But my wife is along. Never mind. She's just as welcome as you are. But, like myself, she is colored. It does not matter. I should not think of your going to a hotel while I have a home in the city. Camilla following, wondering how she would like the young wife. She had great kindness and compassion for the race, but as far as social equality was concerned, though she had her strong personal likings yet, except with Luis, neither custom nor education had reconciled her to maintenance of any equal social relations with them. My wife, said Luis, introducing Camilla to Minnie. Camilla immediately reached out her hand to the young wife and gave her a cordial greeting, and they soon fell into a pleasant and animated conversation. Mutually, they were attracted to each other, and when they reached their destination, Minnie had begun to feel quite at home with Camilla. How is Aunt Miriam, or rather, my grandmother, said Luis. She is well, and often wonders what has become of her poor boy. But she always has persisted in believing that she would see you again, and I know her dear old eyes will run over with gladness. But things have changed very much since we parted. We have passed through the fire since I saw you, and our troubles are not over yet, but we are hoping for better days. But we are at home. Let us alight and Louise and Minnie were ushered into a home whose quiet and refined beauty were very pleasant to the eye, for Camilla had inherited from her father his aesthetic taste and had made her home and its surrounding models of loveliness. Half a dozen varieties of the sweetest and brightest roses clambered up the walls and arrayed them with a garb of rare beauty. Jessamines breathed their fragrance on the air Magnolias reared their stately head and gladdened the eye with the exquisite beauty of their flowers. This is an unexpected pleasure, said Camilla, removing Minnie's bonnet and gazing with unfeigned admiration upon her girlish face. But really, someone must enjoy this pleasure besides myself. Camilla rang the bell. A bright, smiling girl of about ten years appeared. Tell Miriam, she said, to come, that her boy Luis is here. Miriam appeared immediately, and throwing her arms around his neck, gave vent to her feelings in a burst of joy. I always knew you'd come back. I prayed for you night and day, and I always believed I'd see you before I died, and now my words coming true. There's nothing like having faith. Here's my wife said Louise, turning to Minnie. Your wife? Is you married, honey? Well, I hopes you'll have a good time. Minnie came forward and gave her hand to Miriam, as Louise said, This is my grandmother. A look of proud satisfaction passed over the old woman's face, and a sudden joy lit up her eyes at these words of pleasant recognition. Ah, my child, said Miriam. We's had a mighty heap of trouble since you left. Them miserable sickish searched the house all over for you when you was gone, and they was mighty sassy. But we ain't mind that. 
so they didn't catch you. How did you get along? We was dreadfully uneasy about you. Luis then told them of the kindness of the colored people, his thrilling adventures and hairbreadth escapes, and unfolded to them his plans for the future. Camilla listened with deep interest and turning to Minnie, who had left the peaceful sunshine of her mother's home to dwell in the midst of that rough and rude state of society, she said, I cannot help feeling sad to see you exposing yourself to the dangers that lay around your path. The few Southern women who have been faithful to the flag have had a sad experience since the war. We've been ostracized and abused, and often our husbands have been brutally murdered in a number of instances when they were faithful to the dear old flag. A friend of mine, who was an angel of mercy to the Union prisoners, dressing their wounds and carrying them relief, had a dear son who always kept a Union flag at home, which he regarded with almost religious devotion. This made him a marked boy in the community, and during the war, he was so cruelly beaten by some young rebels that he never recovered. And colored women who would win their way under their darkness and cover of night to aid our suffering soldiers were in danger of being flogged if detected. And I understand that one did receive 75 lashes for such an offense. And I heard of another who was shot down like a dog for giving bread to a prisoner who said, Mammy, I'm starving. I think, but I have no right to dictate to you. Had I been you and my home in the North, that I would have preferred staying there, where, to say the least, you could have had pleasanter social relations. You and Louise are nearer the white race than the color. Why should you prefer the one to the other? Because, said Minnie, the prejudices of society are so strong against the people with whom I'm connected on my mother's side that I could not associate with white people on equal terms without concealing my origin and that I scorn to do. The first years of my life passed without my knowing that I was connected with the colored race. But when it was revealed to me by my mother, who suddenly claimed me, at first I shrank from the social ostracism to which that knowledge doomed me. And it was some time before I reconciled to the change. Oh, there are lessons in life that we never learn in the bowers of ease. They must be learned in the fire. For months, life seemed to me a dull, sad thing. And for a while, I did not care whether I lived or died. The sunshine had suddenly faded from my path and the future looked so dark and cheerless. But now, when I look back upon those days of gloom and suffering, I think they were among the most fruitful of my life. For in those days of pain and sorrow, my resolution was formed to join the fortunes of my mother's race, and I resolved to brighten her old age with a joy, with a gladness she had never known in her youth. And how could I have done that had I left her unrecognized and palmed myself upon society as a white woman? And to tell you the truth, having passed most of my life in white society, I did not feel that the advantages of that society would have ever paid me for the loss of my self-respect by passing as white when I knew that I was colored, when I knew that any society 
however cultivated, wealthy, or refined, would not be a social gain to me if my color and not my character must be my passport of admission. So when I found out that I was colored, I made up my mind that I would neither be pitied nor patronized by my former friends, that I would live out my own individuality and do for my race as a colored woman what I never could accomplish as a white woman. I think I understand you, said Camilla, and although I tremble for you in the present state, yet you cannot do better than live out the earnest purpose of your life. I feel that we owe a great debt to the colored race, and I would aid and not hinder any hand that is ready to help do the needed work. I have felt for many years that slavery was wrong, and I'm glad from the bottom of my heart that it has at last been destroyed. And what are your plans, Louise? We're going to open a school and devote our lives to the upbuilding of the future race. I intend entering into some plan to facilitate the free men in obtaining homes of their own. I want to see this newly enfranchised race adding its quota to the civilization of the land. I believe there is power and capacity, only let it have room for exercise and development. We demand no social equality, no supremacy of power. All we ask is that the American people will take their Christless, godless prejudices out of the way and give us a chance to grow, an opportunity to accept life, not merely as a matter of ease and indulgence, but of struggle, conquest, and achievement. Yes, said Camilla, what you want and what the nation should be just enough to grant you is fair play. Yes, that is what we want, to be known by our character and not by our color, to be permitted to take whatever position in society we are fitted to fill. We do not want to be bolstered and propped up on the one hand, nor to be crushed and trampled down on the other. Well, Louise, I think that we're coming to that. No, I cannot feel that all this baptism of fire and blood through which we have passed has been in vain. Slavery as an institution has been destroyed. Slavery as an idea still lives. But I believe that we shall outgrow this spirit of caste and prescription, which still tarnishes our civilization both north and south. After spending a few weeks with Camilla, Louise resolved to settle in the town of El, and as soon as he had chosen his home and made arrangements for the future, he sent for Ellen, and in a few days, she joined her dear children, as she called Louise and Minnie. Very pleasant were the relations between Minnie and the newly freed people. She had found her work, and they had found their friend. She did not content herself with teaching them mere knowledge of books. She felt that if the race would grow in the right direction, it must plant the roots of progress under the hearthstone. She had learned from Anna those womanly arts that give beauty, strength, and grace to the fireside, and it was her earnest desire to teach them how to make their homes bright and happy. Luis, too, with his practical turn of mind, used his influence in teaching them to be saving and industrious and to turn their attention towards becoming landowners. He attended their political meetings, 
not to array class against class, nor to inflame the passions of either side. He wanted the vote of the colored people not to express the old hates and animosities of the plantation, but the new community of interests arising from freedom. For a while, the aspect of things looked hopeful. The Reconstruction Act, by placing the vote in the hands of the colored man, had given him a new position. There was a lull in Southern violence. It was a great change from the fetters on his wrist to the ballot in his right hand, and the uniform testimony of the colored people was, we are treated better than we were before. Some of the rebels indulged in the hope that their former slaves would vote for them, but they were learning the power of combination, and having no political past, they were radical by position, and when southern state after state rolled up its majorities on the radical side, then the vials of wrath were poured upon the heads of the colored people, and the courage and heroism which might have gained them recognition perhaps among the heathens made them more obnoxious here. Still, Louise and Minnie kept on their labors of love, their inner lives daily growing stronger and broader, for they learned to lean upon a strength greater than their own, and some of the most beautiful lessons of faith and trust they had ever learned, they were taught in the lowly cabins of these newly free people. Often many would enter these humble homes and listen patiently to the old stories of wrong and suffering. Sympathizing with their lot, she would give them counsel and help when needed. When she was leaving, they would look after her wistfully and say, she mighty good, we slow down, but she feels for we. And thus, day after day of that earnest life was spent in deeds and words of love and kindness. But let us enter their pleasant home. Louise has just returned from a journey to the city and has brought with him the latest Northern papers. He is looking rather sober and Minnie, ready to detect the least change of his countenance, is at his side. What's the matter? Minnie asked in a tone of deep concern. I'm really discouraged. What about? Look here said he, handing her the New York Tribune. State after state has rolled up a majority against Negro suffrage. I have been trying to persuade our people to vote the Republican ticket, but today I feel like blushing for the party. They are weakening our hands and strengthening those of the rebels. But Louise, they were not Republicans who gave these majorities against us. But darling, if large numbers of these Republicans stayed at home and let the election go by default, the result was just the same. Now every rebel can throw it in our teeth and say, see your great Republican party? They refuse to let the Negro vote with them, but they force him upon us. They don't do it out of regard to the Negro, but only to spite us. I don't think many that I am much given to gloomy forebodings, but I see from the temper and actions of these rebels that they're encouraged and emboldened by these tidings from the North. And today, they are turning people out of work for voting the radical ticket. A while ago, they tried flattery and cajolery, and you could hear it on almost every side. 
We are the best friends of the colored people. Appeals were made to the memories of the past, how they hunted and played together in search for birds' nests in the rotten peach trees. And when the colored people were not to be caught by such chaff, some were trying to force them into submission by intimidation and starvation. Just then, a knock was heard at the door, and a dark man entered. There was nothing in his appearance that showed any connection with the white race. There was a tone of hopefulness in his speech, though his face wore a somewhat anxious expression. Good morning, Mr. Jackson, said Louise, for in deference to their feelings, he had dropped the aunt and uncle of bygone days. Good morning, replied the man, while a pleasant smile flitted over his countenance. How does the world use you, said Louise? Well, times are rather bilious with me but I'm beginning to pick up a little. I get a few boots and shoes to mend. I always used to go to the mountains and get plenty of work to do, but this year they wouldn't give me the situation because I had joined the radicals. What a shame, said Louise. These men who have always had their rights of citizenship seem to know so little of the claims of justice and humanity that they are ready to browbeat and intimidate these people for voting according to their best interests. And what saddens me most is to see so many people of the North clasping hands with these rebels and traitors, and to hear it repeated that these people are too ignorant to vote. Ignorant as they are, said many, during the war, they knew more than their masters, for they knew how to be true to their country when their masters were false to it and rallied around the flag when they were trampling it underfoot and riddling it with bullets. Ah, said Uncle Richard, I knows them of old. Last week, some of them offered me $500 if I would desert my party, but I wasn't going to forsake my people. I have been in pretty tight places this year. One night when I come home, my little girl said to me, Daddy, there ain't no bread in the house. Now that just got me, but I begun to pray, and the next day I found a quarter of a dollar, and then some of my color friends said it wouldn't do to let Uncle Jack starve, and they made me up 75 cents. My wife sometimes gets out of heart, but she don't see very far off. I wish, said Louise, after Mr. Jackson had left, that some of our northern men would only see the heroism of that simple-minded man. Here he stands facing an uncertain future, no longer young in years, stripped by slavery, his wife not in full sympathy with him, and yet with what courage he refused the bribe. Yes, said Minnie, $500 means a great deal for a man landless and poor, with no assured support for the future. It means a comfortable fire when the blasts of winter are roving around your home. It means bread for the little ones and medicine for the sick child and a little starting light. But on the other hand, said Louise, it meant betrayal of the interests of his race. And I honored the faithfulness which shook his hands from receiving the bribe and clasping hands politically with his lifelong oppressors. And I asked myself the question while he was telling his story, which hand was the better custodian of the ballot? The white hand that offered the bribe 
or the black one that refused it. I think the time will come when some of the Anglo-Saxon race will blush to remember that when they were trailing the banner of freedom in the dust, black men were grasping it with their earnest hand, bearing it aloft amid persecution, pain, and death. Louise said many very seriously, I think the nation makes one great mistake in settling this question of suffrage. It seems to me that everything gets settled on a partial basis. When they are reconstructing the government, why not lay the whole foundation anew and base the right of suffrage not on the claims of service or sex, but on the broader basis of our common humanity? Because, Minnie, we are not prepared for it. This hour belongs to the Negro. But Louise, is it not the Negro woman's hour also? Has she not as many rights and claims as the Negro man? Well, perhaps she has, but darling, you cannot better the condition of colored men without helping the colored women. What elevates him helps her. All that may be true, but I cannot recognize that the Negro man is the only one who has pressing claims at this hour. Today, our government needs women's conscience as well as men's judgment. And while I would not throw a straw in the way of a colored man, even though I know that he will vote against me as soon as he gets his vote, yet I do think that a woman should have some power to defend herself from oppression and equal laws as if she were a man. But really, I should not like to see you wending your way through rough and brawling mobs to the polls. Because these mobs are rough and coarse, I would have women vote. I would have softened the asperity of the mobs and bring into our politics a deeper and broader humanity. When I see intemperance send its floods of ruin and shame to the homes of men and pass by the grog shops that are constantly grinding out their fearful grists of poverty, ruin, and death. I long for the hour when women's vote will be leveled against these charnel houses and have, I hope, the power to close them through the length and breadth of the land. Why, darling, said Louise, gazing admiringly upon the earnest enthusiasm lighting up her face. I shall begin to believe that you are a strong-minded woman. Surely you would not have me a weak-minded woman in these hours of trial. But, darling, I did not think you were such an advocate for women's voting. I think, Louise that basing our rights on the ground of our common humanity is the only true foundation for national peace and durability. If you would have the government strong and enduring, you would entrench it in the hearts of both the men and women of the land. I think you're right in that remark, said Louise, and thus their evenings were enlivened by pleasant and interesting conversations upon the topics of the day. Once when a union friend was spending an evening at their home, Louise entered looking somewhat animated and many, ever ready to detect his moods and feelings, wanted to know what had happened. Oh, I have been to a wedding since I left home. And pray who was married? Guess. I don't know whom to guess. One of our friends? Yes. Was it Mr. Wellen? Yes. And who did he marry? Is she a northern woman? A staunch unionist? 
Well, I can't imagine who she can be. Why he married Miss Henson, who sent you those beautiful flowers? Why, Louise, is it possible? Why, she is a colored woman. I know. But how came he to marry her? For the same reason I married you, because he loved her. Well, said the union man who sat quietly listening, I'm willing to give the colored people every right that I possess myself, but as to intermarrying with them, I am not prepared for that. I think, said Louise, that marrying and social equality among the races will simply regulate itself. I do not think under the present condition of things that there will be any general intermarrying of the races, but this idea of rooted antagonism of races to me is all moonshine. I believe that what you call the instincts of race are only the prejudices which are the result of custom and education. And if there is any instinct in the matter, it is rather the instinct of nature to make a semi-tropical race in a semi-tropical climate. Wellen told me that he had met his wife when she was a slave, that he loved her then and would have bought her had it been in his power. But now that freedom had come to her, he was glad to have the privilege of making her his wife. He is an Englishman by birth, and he intends taking her home with him to England when a favorable opportunity presents itself. And that is far more honorable and manly than living together after the old order of things. I think, said Louise, facing the floor, that a cruel wrong was done to many and myself when life was given to us under conditions that doomed us to hopeless slavery and from which we were rescued only by good fortune. I have heard some colored persons boasting of the white blood, but I always feel like blushing for mine. Much as my father did for me, he could never atone for giving me life under the conditions he did. Never mind, said Minnie. It all turned out for the best. Yes, darling, said Louise, growing calmer, for it gave me you, and that was life's compensation. But the question of the intermingling of the races in marriage is one that scarcely interests this question. The question that presses upon us with the most fearful distinctness is how we can make life secure in the South. I sometimes feel as if the very air was busting with bayonets. There is no law here but the revolver. There must be a screw loose somewhere. And this government that taxes its men in peace and drafts them in war ought to be wise enough to know its citizens and strong enough to protect them. Are you still up? Girl, good night.